When we're studying the Old Testament, one of the, the challenges to handling the Word of God properly is saying, okay, as I'm reading these true accounts of historical data that God has deemed important to be in my Bible and tells me that it's profitable for me, uh, how do I take what I'm reading, such as a story in the book of Joshua, and apply it in modern time in my own personal life? Now, we're reading about God's people overtaking someone else's property. We would not want to say, okay, so maybe God wants us to take some of our neighbor's surrounding homes so we can increase the size of our church property. Uh, that would not be a good sound application of this text. Uh, but at the same point, um, we, we talk about how there are parallels in our spiritual walk with the Lord by what's happening in the, the narratives of people's lives. They are being led by God. Uh, they are being called to make actions based on faith and obedience and trust. And there are some parallels where you can take what's going on in the physical world, like we talk about facing the giant, right? Well, then we talk about that doesn't mean that I have to be dealing with someone that's over seven foot tall for it to apply. We say there's different metaphorical giants in our lives, right? Well, we're talking about a city named Jericho, and this city looks to probably most people to be somewhat impregnable. Uh, it's got very thick walls. Uh, it is shut up. Uh, it's not uh, allowing visitors in at this point. It would seem very challenging to be able to get the victory over such an impregnable uh, city such as this. And say, how does that apply to my daily life? Well, we have different kinds of strongholds that we will be confronted with in our spiritual lives. Before we spend much time in Joshua 6, I would like to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And Paul talks about spiritual strongholds. And so that's what I would like our minds to be thinking about as we're learning some of the principles from Joshua chapter 6. In 2 Corinthians 10, and let me begin at verse 3. He's talking about some of the uh, struggle of walking in our human flesh as he opens the first two verses. And then in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 10, he says this, For though we walk in the flesh, in other words, though we live daily life in our bodies, we do not war after the flesh. Now that's very important to understand that. Our, our warring that we do spiritual warfare with is not by picking up a physical sword. We don't put on a Kevlar vest. Uh, it's not that kind of war. Yes, we're walking around in physical bodies, but our battle is on a spiritual plane, is what he's saying here. And then he goes on to verse 4 and says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, in other words, they're not of a tangible nature, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of what? strongholds and he said what are these strongholds well he immediately in verse 5 talks about casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God 
and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And so immediately he's defining these strongholds as battles in the mind, thoughts, emotions, things of that nature. And so let's just think about this for a minute. What kind of strongholds might we face as believers in this time period in which we live in? Uh, Some of these strongholds could be because of broken relationships with another individual. could be a family member. It might be someone else. And we might find ourselves kind of stalling out about how to approach this other individual based on how we're thinking about it. Maybe it comes up into our minds and we're wondering, God, are you bringing this into my mind to think about this person in this way? Um, am I supposed to do something about this? I know we haven't talked in quite some time. Things kind of ended a little badly and rough between us. And, you know, we kind of think about it. We might pray about it. And then we kind of maybe pack it away again, right? And we just kind of don't deal with it. It seems like a walled city that we can't get through. For others, it, it might be some sort of uh, distressful situation, such as I mentioned this morning, some people battle with certain emotional struggles in their lives that are brought on by circumstances around them. Uh, some people grew up in very challenging home lives, for instance. Maybe they came out of bad marital relationships. Maybe they had uh, experienced some sort of abuse by in the workplace or something like that and and so these things contribute to maybe a way of thinking there's some people that are gripped by fear and so maybe they have a hard time moving into certain uh, events or even uh, being around certain people because they have this stronghold in their life And they're like, I don't like being enslaved this way, but I don't know how to deal with it. And so we package it away again. Uh, It it could be some other struggle that we're facing with in our life. You know, maybe a a physical issue where uh, we are battling uh, a need to change some lifestyle issues in our life. And it's challenging. It's hard. There's physical limitations we have. There's habits that we've created over the years And to change those things, it just seems daunting to us. It's a stronghold. We might as well be looking at the walls of Jericho, right? Others, it could be battling some besetting sin. Uh, Maybe there's a, a man that's been battling lust in his life and he's given at times to uh, delving into pornography or or ladies too for that matter in this day and age we know it's not a a a gender specific issue anymore and uh, it's kind of gripped people's spirits and souls and you know God convicts and it's just like you know but but what I would have to do to just rid myself of that problem just seems so overwhelming and so again it just kind of gets set aside but it doesn't get dealt with I could go on and on and list potential strongholds, but my, my goal isn't to try to name every stronghold we could exist, but simply to give certain examples so that maybe your stronghold, if I haven't listed it, if you have one or you know of someone that you care deeply for that might have a stronghold in their life that hasn't been addressed spiritually as a Christian, 
maybe that will come to your mind as we talk about this. But here's the point. God wants us as Christians to have victory. God wants us to be able to look at these situations and say, no, my child, I don't expect you to handle this problem on your own. I am here to help strengthen you through these problems. As Paul was talking about casting down imaginations and everything, it's through the obedience of Christ. It's coming in submission to Him. It's me saying, Lord, I can't do this, but I know you can. Help me to keep my mind stayed upon you. That's where perfect peace comes from. That's how there's victory over these mental strongholds that we face in our lives as Christians. And so as we look at the story of Joshua chapter 6 tonight, what can we understand about God's victory that he wants us to have? And the first thing I noticed as I was reading through and studying this passage is that we have a God of the unimaginable outcome. We need to start right there. Uh, Imagine being there as one of these Israelites that day and knowing we're getting ready to address this stronghold right here. High walls, impregnable walls for all practical purposes. But the question is, are we looking at it through our eyes or do we know how to look at it through God's eyes? Do we see what God sees? What what God sees is the outcome before you even begin the process. He knows where it's going to end up. That's, That's why victory is possible. Now, notice verse 2. When the Lord is speaking to Joshua, the very first thing he says to him, and the Lord said unto Joshua, what's the very next word in our Bible? See. Now, what is that referring to? Now, it's probably unlikely that he's pointing literally. He's just speaking to him. But this is more of, Joshua, let the light bulb turn on in your mind. Understand things the way I understand things. Here's what I want you to imagine and understand and grasp. And what is it? I have given into thine hand. Notice there's not a future tense here. He doesn't say, I will give into your hands. He says what? I have given into thine hand. It's already a certain thing. The victory, as far as God is concerned, is there. Could Joshua see that? And we don't know exactly what was in Joshua's mind completely. I imagine that he couldn't completely grasp in the fullness of what is being talked about here. I imagine he's like a man of like passions as we are. And we're listening. We'd be listening to what God's saying and say, as I mentioned this morning, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Right. The battle had not even yet begun. And much less would it have been won at this point. So to look at this, you had to look with the eye of faith. And that's what God always challenges us to do. He doesn't give us the, the preview videotape and say, here's how it's all going to play out. I want you to watch it from beginning to end, like a YouTube video, so that as you begin, you know what's coming. No, God doesn't do that. He didn't do it at the Red Sea. He didn't do it at the Jordan River. He explained, here's what I want you to do, and trust me. And isn't that what he does in your life and my life? 
And so we might be looking at these strongholds in our lives or someone else's life and thinking, I don't know how this is going to play out. I don't see how it's possible. I don't know how this relationship can be repaired. I don't know how I can, after all these years, think properly about this situation. But we have to see with God's eyes. What they could see was that Jericho was shut up, meaning it was under siege. Now, they had done this to themselves, Jericho had. Uh, They probably had enough food supply and water supply to uh, weather a certain period of time um, in this this format. Jericho was about 18 acres in size, and it was surrounded by an inner and outer wall. It had two different walls. The reason the gates of Jericho were closed is that they were afraid of the reports of the God who dried up the Red Sea. That goes all the way back to Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. They, they knew. They had been, quote, getting the news. And so now the moment of reckoning is here. And so they're desperate to do what they can. Now, the Israelites are looking at this and thinking, wow, how are we going to get in there? And what do we think? We might think something like this in 2021. Lord, if I could just see you do something powerful, it would help my faith. I've thought that way. There's been times I'm like, Lord, it would be a great time for something a little miraculous here. And Becky and I were talking this past week about um, uh, Brother Princess. He's, he's really admonished me here about the need to chronicle the history of the church and stuff and and I'm, I'm really praying that we'll be able to do an effective job of that. And here's, here's one of the reasons why. is because we, we need to have those ancient landmarks that we don't forget certain things. And, and Becky's like, you know, people that are new to the church, they haven't heard stories, the accounts of what God has done, for instance. And she brought up one particular example where we were, we were about two-thirds of the way uh, through construction, and we had had some, even though we had, con- we had thought we planned well, you know, the person, how do you, you don't build a tower without planning the cost first. We had contingency money. Well, that contingency money still wasn't enough um, because uh, the, the architect and the engineers made some major miscalculations. I mean, and a couple of these miscalculations were, over $100,000, so it was not chump change, to say the least. So we're left as a building committee trying to figure out where can we cut at this point, you know? I mean, the building's up. And about one of the few things that we had left to do was um, we hadn't put the little drive under that we have out front, which on a day like today, aren't we glad we have that, right? We call it the portico. The other thing that we hadn't done yet is we hadn't put in the curbing. Uh, we had the coquina out there, but they hadn't come in and done the, the curbing, and then the asphalt would come after that. They hadn't done that. The other thing we hadn't done is we hadn't placed the order for the movable partition walls in our fellowship hall, which are great soundproof uh, you know, things that give us a lot of flexibility with that whole side of the building. And we figured that you know, adding all of that up together, that that would uh, save us what we need so that we could still uh, come in under budget. And we pretty much had to because we knew how much money we could borrow 
uh, from the bank and how much money we had. And, you know, you had to make it match, you know. We weren't the government. We couldn't just decide to, you know, extend the national debt, you know, and print extra money, right? Um, and I remember us praying, and it was the, the day of that the paving company needed to know, okay, do you want curbs or don't you want curbs? It had come to that point, and, uh, and, and I had to let them know. And I was just praying, I'm like, Lord, a lot of churches that don't have curbs. We don't, Portico would be nice. We can add maybe the folding walls later, you know, all these things. It's really fine. But Lord, if you want us to have this, you know, you're going to have to supply, you know. And you add all that to, together, it was a little over $100,000 that we're talking about. And I was driving, as I recall, from the property here after having just been here. And I was stopping at the time. We had a post office box for the church because um, we didn't have a mailbox here yet. We didn't have a church here to have a mailbox. So stopped at the Little River Post Office, put, put the key in the box, open it up. And here was this letter in the the uh, return address was from uh, this foundation. And I was like, this is strange. And I opened it up, and there was this very nice letter saying, hi, my name is so-and-so. I represent this foundation, and we're aware of your uh, building a church. And we just want to let you know that um, we are going to be approving you uh, a grant for $200,000. It was double what we needed at the moment, you know. And I immediately, you know, called a couple of the guys in the building committee and said, guess what just happened? You know, you won't believe this. And, and I called the guy. Uh, well, that was the first day that I called the man. And he's like, yes, just wanted you to know that. Uh, you'll have the check by the end of the week. Uh, we'll be uh, sending it by uh, special delivery. And, uh, and I was like, Praise the Lord, you know. I didn't say, well, we only need 100000 you know. <laughs> but, but even that, okay, and I forget now exactly. I go back and look at my notes. But there were some other things that happened. You know what? We needed every dime of that 200000 you know. I thought the Lord was overpaying. He was just giving us some in advance in this case. But I called the paving guy, and I'm like, put the curbs in. Put the curbs in. So when I walk around, I see curbs, I, I'm triggered in my memory, and I think about, you know, what the Lord has done. And so sometimes we see the Lord do something rather miraculous like that, and that's really neat, and that helps us. That's one of those things where, you know, our, our faith sometimes just needs that little bit of a boost, doesn't it? But by and large, we need to learn to walk day by day, and just trust the Lord without anything spectacular necessarily happening. This generation of Israelites, they had not seen some of the things that their forefathers had seen. Uh, as far as the, now of course they got to see crossing over Jordan, that would have been pretty neat, right? But their forefathers that came out of Egypt, what did they see? They saw 10 separate plagues that brought the most powerful nation in the world at the time to its knees. And those plagues, by the way, it's interesting to study it out. Every plague 
if you ever wondered about this, why locusts here? Why was it the water, you know, the Nile turned to blood? Each plague was addressing a specific false god in Egypt. It was showing that the one true God, Jehovah, was powerful over all the false gods that they were worshiping in. So God, one by one, was just taking out what the Egyptians were putting their faith and trust in, ultimately. And of course, that Passover, where all the children was a direct attack on Pharaoh himself, who saw himself as a god. But the the previous generation had seen such amazing things. And you think about how they came out. God doesn't always do the same thing the same way twice. For instance, as we talked about the Jordan River, in that case, God said, as you come to this body of water, I want you to step first, and then as you step, the water will separate, and you'll be, able to, you'll be able to go across. It was the priest that did that. And it's very clear uh, in the verbiage of Scripture. As their foot comes down, boom, the water parts. But when they came out of Egypt and they came to a body of water called the Red Sea, they were standing and they waited until God parted the waters first. And God isn't to be put in a box how he decides to do things, is he? Sometimes we may say, Lord, that was really neat what you did for my friend over there. Would you do that for me? You know, I remember going through Bible college and we would have prayer group time in the evening and share testimonies. And I remember a couple times there were friends of mine that would share like, you know, Today, I was told I can't take final exams until I can pay a certain amount on my school bill because I'm so far behind in paying my school bill. And I'm working as hard, as many hours as I, they'll let me work, but it's still just not enough. He said, and I just prayed, Lord, you know, if you want me to take final exams, you're going to have to do something. He says, and I went to my post office box, and there was a letter for exactly the amount, a check for exactly the amount that I needed from an anonymous donor. And I heard stories like that, and I'm like, you know, Lord, I wish you'd do something like that for me. That would be really cool. That would be really neat. The Lord chose to supply my needs in a different way, which, as I look back, I'm so thankful. I still give God equal credit for, the want, for being a God that supplied those things. Martha, in the book of John, when her brother passes away, was concerned that Jesus... Uh, was doing something unwise by ordering the opening of the tomb. You know, pull the stone away. Why? Because there had been a lot of decomposition that would have taken place from the time that they had put him in and closed the rock over it until this present time. And Jesus, do you remember this? Jesus calms her and her unsettledness. Martha was the more pragmatic one, right? You know, between Martha and Mary, she was the more pragmatic one. She was there making sure everything was right in the kitchen and stuff like that. But so Jesus says to her in John eleven forty, 40, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, then thou shouldest see the glory of God. It's very important to pick up on those two words that he uses there and the order that he gives them. If thou wouldest believe, that's first, you've got to do that first, believe, then once you believe, then you'll be able to see. Then you'll be able to understand. What do we want? Lord, show me so that I might believe. But that's not faith, is it? 
Isn't it a shame when the world seems to have more faith sometimes in what they call their God than we might? I've heard people talk, and I'm like, wow, you know, some of these people that are in these false cults seem to, exer- seem to exercise more faith in something that's untrue than, than the God that we know to be true according to the Bible. It does take a different kind of faith to step forward in a situation than it does to stay in a situation, you know? The status quo is sometimes a little easier. I'm in it, I'm used to it, I'm accustomed to it. Oh, you're going to bring change into my life, Lord? Oh, I don't know about that, right? Don't do so well with change. But you know what we need to do is we need to start trusting and we need to keep trusting is the idea. And all this is the idea that we don't know the outcomes. And we, we automatically, just our nature, we begin to imagine, well, this is the scenario I think is going to happen with regard to this stronghold in my life. You know, if God's going to deal with it, this is what I think he's going to do. Let's be careful about pre-designing and somehow in our minds putting God in this box. Because our God is the God of the unimaginable outcome. I dare say if you had taken a sheet of paper and given to everybody of the two million people in Israel that day and say, okay, we're getting ready to go to Jericho. And... God's going to give us the victory. Now, write one paragraph how you think God's going to do that. Do you think anybody turned in a paper that said, we're going to walk around it a bunch of times and the wall's just going to fall down? Who would put that down, right? And so God has often in our lives brought victory for us in ways that we as humans can't predict. And God gets the glory in those situations, right? We're just full of praise. We're like, God, you know, it's amazing. Only you, only you, only you could do that. Secondly, I see that as we talk about God giving victory, is we need to understand that we have the God of the unusual approach. This is an unusual, uh, it was an unexpected outcome. uh, But look at the approach, the tactics, beginning at verse 3. God does seem to have unusual tactics, doesn't he? Uh, they might have and say, okay, what do we need to be able to attack this city? Well, battering ram would be helpful, right? Uh, maybe some catapults that we can build, some mechanisms where we can throw, you know, molten balls of, of oil across and, uh, and burn the city out. Uh, maybe we'll just starve the city out uh, and just kind of hold them at bay that way. What good does walking around do, Right? Uh, would they not be vulnerable? I mean, we're right outside the walls. They're up there. They could start shooting down at us. Is it really good to be just walking around the city like this? Wouldn't it be a waste of energy? Maybe we should be conserving our strength. You know, we're going to be all worn out at the end of a week of making these little trips around the city. And why six days? And maybe perhaps the silence that's mentioned in verse 10 is the most unusual thing. Uh, maybe we should be shouting as we go. Maybe we could work on our warrior tone, you know, bring it up from real low, you know, and, you know, bang some things or whatever. Let's try to intimidate them on the inside. But they were marching around for six days in absolute silence. You know, these are God's tactics. 
And God often calls us to do things that might seem a little bit unusual. You know, at the, at the base of the Mount of Transfiguration, there's a lot of activity going on when Jesus comes down with Peter, James, and John. He's got some disciples down there, and they're trying to kick a demon out of a young boy. And we don't know what all they were doing, but they had some sort of antics going on. They were, they were doing things probably that they had tried before and, and had worked successfully in the past. But the father is just a little put out with these disciples because they're not having any success in helping his son. And Jesus comes over and he says, guys, this kind, the demon that's in this boy, comes forth not but with prayer and fasting. You know, and it's like, really? I would think that if I slap him in the head and yell, come out in the name of Jesus, that that would cause the demon to come out. He says, no, you need to go over here and get on your face before God. Even give up your nourishment so that you're not distracted and just pray and pray because you need greater dependence upon my Father. That seems like an unusual tactic to some people, right? But that's how God works. God seems to also take unnecessary risk. We might think that way. Out comes the Ark of the Covenant. That's a precious, precious piece of furniture. Perhaps the most revered item to the children of Israel. Why take it into a place where it might be captured? Of course, we know in 1 Samuel 4, that is what happens. Of course, they do it when God doesn't direct them to do it which is precisely why the Lord allowed it to be captured. But here God is directing them, take the ark. You're going to walk around. In this instance, God is prescribing it. If God is directing, then there's really no risk. You don't need to worry about it. God is guiding us in this situation. You'll note that I said God seems to take risk. He seems to take risk sometimes. But it's really no risk for him. God's all-powerful. He sees the end from the beginning. Uh, Ephesians 1.11 tells us that he worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. You know, that includes in your life as well as my life. When it says he works all things out after the counsel of his own will. God can bring things to pass, no matter what difficulty level they might seem. We love to quote Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for what? For good to them that love God and are the called according to his purpose. And so what might seem to be a risk, like they're taking here, if we're trusting God, and he's asking us, you know, we feel that impression upon our hearts to pick up the phone. The Holy Spirit's just pressing on it. Pick up that phone, call that person. But there's a big risk here. Not if God's in it. God will help you through it. Maybe the Holy Spirit's con convicting you and say, you need to make yourself very transparent to this person. You need to come very clean with this person. And you need to be very admitting of some things in your life. Oh, if I do that, I'm risking a lot. What will that person think of me? What kind of reputation will I have? If God's leading you to do it. It really is not a risk. Thirdly, God seems to vary the involvement of his people. Here, the crumbling of the walls are linked simply to the shout of the people. Do you think that God knew that there was a certain weakness in the, 
the masonry of the wall and that if he got enough volume of the people shouting simultaneously that the, the wavelength of their voices at a certain decibel level would, would cause that wall to crumble. In other words, is it the shout of the people that takes down the wall? And I would say to you, no. It's not like the, the wavelength of their voice. But they are obedient to shout because God told them to shout. What takes down the walls? God takes down the walls. And say, then did I really need to shout in the first place? Yes, why? Because God told you to shout. You know, perhaps sometimes we think, well, if, if God's so powerful, does he really need me to do this and that with regard to my strongholds? I mean, why don't I just kind of wait around and let God fix it? Because God gets glory sometimes in the way he asks us to participate in it. I mean, we're talking about the Christmas story. Look at how many people are involved in that. Everybody from John the Baptist's parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth, and, and their involvement. Uh, think about the shepherds. Uh, think about uh, Joseph and his, his willingness to succumb to the direction of God in all of this. I mean, God could have more streamlined the coming of his son into the world. But God got, brings so much glory to himself and strengthens the faith of so many people in that setting as well as centuries to come as we continue to read that account and see how our God works and he uses us. It's not always the same. What God does in your life might be different than he'll do in my life. Praise God when he does say, I want to use you. It's a privilege. Thirdly, we see that he is the God of the untouchable items. We didn't read this far, but down in verses 17 through 19, if you'll look there for just a second, it says, and the city shall be accursed. Another way of saying that would be devoted to God. The city shall be accursed, even it and all that are therein to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, and she and all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that are sent. And ye in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed. When ye take of the accursed thing, and make the camp of Israel a curse, and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord. There's that idea of being devoted they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. In other words, he's telling them, keep your hands off the booty. Leave it all alone. Of course, we'll come to the next story in chapter 7 about Achan and realize how uh, it only took one person to disobey to really create havoc in this situation. But God sometimes puts things just off limits. He did it from the very beginning. He creates a garden Everything in it is perfectly okay to enjoy, but there's one tree. There's one tree. Let's keep our theology straight. Was that tree a sinful tree? I'll answer the question for you. No, it was not a sinful tree. Because we know that God made everything, and when God was done making everything, he said that all things that he made was what? It was good. The only thing bad about that tree was the way... Adam and Eve chose to interact with it. 
Sin only comes by disobedience. And so God sometimes puts limits and lines because that, that free will of man to choose, will I do what God says or won't I, is the clearest way to demonstrate, God, I love you. God made man with a choice, with the intention that he would choose right and continue to choose right. And we see how all of human history has been affected badly, horribly, because of the wrong choice where God drew a line and someone carelessly crossed over it. So God's sovereignty, his mercy, and covenant kept the swords from slaying Rahab and her family. That's what it was about. God said, here's a line. Everybody else, you know, they need to be dealt with, but don't touch Rahab. I've made a covenant there. They were also to leave the booty, the treasure. It was tempting to touch what God made off limits in both ways. Uh, touching for the purpose of removing. No soldier was to bring judgment with his sword where God had offered pardon. God had pardoned Rahab. There might have been soldiers that said, if anyone ought to be destroyed, it's a harlot, right? I mean, this is not just a pagan in the land. This is really the off-scouring of pagans in the land. So why wouldn't God want me to destroy this woman and her family in this way? And the answer is God says, my grace has pardoned her. So we need to be careful about who we attack with our mental daggers and where Christ has granted forgiveness to someone. You know, there, there are people out there that they're, they're people that may be getting under our skin, uh, people that have done great wickednesses in their life, and you might think to yourself, you know, if this individual, if this political figure ever got saved, I'm not sure I could ever go up and, and, and give them a hug and say, I am so glad you're now my sister in Christ or you're my brother in Christ. But you know what? We need to be able to have that mindset because we look at them and say, God pardoned you. And if God can pardon you, I can embrace you as my spiritual family member. There's also not just the touching to remove, but there's the touching to receive. And they weren't to do either kind. And the touching to receive was to pick up and take something that God had said, leave it alone. You know, human reasoning sometimes seems like it ought to trump everything else. In other words, I can work this out in my mind why this is a good thing. And it might seem flawless to you. And you might even be able to explain it to someone else and like, yeah, I can't find any holes in your reasoning. And maybe what someone would say, you know what, let's take Aiken for a minute. He might think, you know, I've got some children here. One of them has some real health issues. Um, I've got a mortgage payment. I've got to put three kids through college. You know, all these different things. We're just going to leave this behind. I mean, or it's just going to get destroyed or, you know, Who's going to miss a couple gold bars and some Babylonian garments, right? I mean, I'm really not doing this for myself. You know, I'm not trying to build a man cave for myself once we get into the land of Canaan here. I'm doing this for my family. Now, we don't know that that's what it was in Achan's heart. But you know what? It doesn't matter what your reasoning is. 
If God has said, leave it alone, don't touch it. This is one of the reasons why people get caught up in some strongholds. They are able to rationalize why they feel right holding on to these strongholds in their life. Bitterness is a big stronghold. Sometimes people can say, yes, I realize I'm probably bitter at this individual and I have resentment. But let me tell you what they did to me. And you tell me if they were right. And I'm like, I don't need to hear the story. Let's say, for argument's sake, I agree with you. They were completely 100% wrong. So you don't even need to tell me the story. Still does not give you a right to be bitter and resentful towards them. But we sometimes think, but it makes logical sense to me. I've counseled individuals that are battling with lust in their life, and they've given themselves to what they're indulging their eyes into and, and said, I know it's wrong, but let me tell you why I do this. And they begin to give me some logical explanation. And some of it almost sounds plausible. And I'm like, you left out one problem that topples everything down. God said no. And that, that takes all your reasoning and just throws it away. I mean, read your Bible. God says, here's what I want you to do. And he doesn't say, but it's open for discussion. I mean, I might change my mind about this. Is that how God works? That's not how God works. We know that the chapter ends with Joshua's fame on the rise. If you look down at verse 27, the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was noised throughout all the country. And so the walls come down just as God said. They walk around in silence for six days. On the seventh day, they do it seven times. And then there's the shout, and the walls come tumbling down, and God gives a great victory. It seems to us so simple. Just follow the steps. It's kind of like cooking something. Just follow the recipe. You know, don't get too creative. You'll mess it up, okay? Just do what it says. There's a reason why you mix the dry ingredients first, and then you add these things later. It's not just a matter of dumping it all together. God prescribes things for us. There's a certain amount of spiritual arrogance in our lives sometimes that keeps us from spiritual victory. We wouldn't say it this way, but we act as if we know better than God. I'll tweak this a little bit. I've got my way of handling this situation. We would never vocally be so arrogant to say, I'm an exception. But in our behavior, sometimes we actually act that way. And then we wonder, God, why don't you give me victory in my life? Why am I struggling in this area? And maybe it's just as simple as my child. When will you obey me and trust me? May God help us to do so that we can enjoy his victory. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise of victory over strongholds in our life. If we will really understand you and how you work and not try to tweak your plans, not try to vary what you're doing, that we are okay with not always being in the light and sometimes being in the dark, often in the dark, but still moving forward in obedience. Not thinking that we're exceptions to how your word lays things out for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be brutally honest with ourselves and these areas that we might be struggling with so that we might have the victory that you want us to have.
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps today you find yourself with a stronghold in your life. It comes down to how you're not viewing God properly. It usually does come to that somehow. Yeah, it may be some secondary things going on here, but it always comes back to God in our relationship and walk with Him. And so maybe there's some things that we need to confess before the Lord, saying, Lord, I don't really want to deal, even deal with this stronghold, but your, your spirit is really impressing upon me tonight that this needs to be dealt with, and I need to trust you. I need to follow your word. I need to have these things brought down. You want me to have victory in my mind. You want me to have a liberated way of thinking and outlook on life, and I'm not walking around in fear, or I'm not walking around in lust. I'm not walking around in covetousness. I'm not bridled by bitterness in my life. God wants us to have abundant life, and the victory is there for us if we will trust him. Will you? Will you say, Lord, whatever it takes, I will follow your leadership, no matter how hard it might be, no matter how it might, it might not jive with my sense of reasoning. I will simply do what you lead me to do so that I might honor you with the victory that you choose to give me.